0: Hi, my name's Mark from Fayetteville, Arkansas. I'm a small business owner with nine employees. I do my best to make sure that every employee has a living wage, as we should. I simply reflect that charge back to the customer, and I draw a modest salary and a profit share from the company I own.
1: My name is Justin, and I'm calling from Asheville, North Carolina. I was a cook for a very long time, and actually recently I got a phone call offering me one of my old jobs back. Uh, They are paying better, but the job itself is exactly what I used to do, and there was a reason why I left that job. Even though the pay would be better, I was tired of being very stressed out and having to work nights and weekends and holidays. So my comment would just be that, sure, there's a lot of jobs available, but it's the quality of those jobs. The pandemic has prompted a lot of change within the workforce. One considerable shift is workers telling their boss they're not going to take it anymore. The so-called Great Resignation hasn't let up since it started in 2021. In February of this year, over 4 million people quit their jobs. About 74,000 of those who left worked in retail. The Big Quit is part of a movement of workers demanding change, safety, and respect during a global pandemic.
0: Fete grande, mocha double, union busters, you've got trouble, we don't get it, shut it down, we don't get it, shut it down, we don't get it, shut it down, down. we work, we sweat,
1: so give us our respect,
0: ALU, ALU, ALU.
1: Workers today are building on decades of strikes and challenges to a system that didn't always have their best interest in mind. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Pop app and leave us a voicemail. We'll be back with more after the break. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. Stress shows up in all kinds of ways. In a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less, and grind all the time, Here's your reminder to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy. BetterHelp is committed to helping you in times of stress with customized online therapy. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com 1A and see if it helps life feel a little bit easier. We're discussing the past and present of labor movements in America. Kim Kelly is author of the new book, Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. She takes a look back at America's labor efforts by those who have historically had the least amount of power, women and people of color. And she joins me now. Kim, welcome to 1A. Thank you so much for having me. It's a joy to be here. And we should note that WAMU voted to unionize in December of 2020 and are currently in contract negotiations with the station's license holder, American University. Kim, you come from a family of union members and you are an organizer yourself. Growing up, what impact did those unions have on you? I knew that the union was a good thing and that it had our back. You know, I didn't necessarily know the
2: history or all the ins and outs of what goes into being a union member, what goes into organizing, but I knew that, you know, my dad to union said he had to go on strike. He went on strike. I knew we'd had to tighten our belts. I knew that things would be a little harder, but I also knew that was part of the job. And when my mother got really sick when I was a teenager, I knew that it was really my dad to union health insurance that was the only thing that kept her alive and kept us from becoming bankrupt. It was, um, it was just kind of part of the, the, the background, right? Like the sky is blue, grass is green, unions are good. And then when I got a chance later on to join one myself, I was thrilled just to join my family tradition and also the, you know, the broader labor tradition in this country.
1: Now, in this book, you're looking back at labor history in the U.S. starting in the 1800s up until today. Uh, there are a number of well-known unionization efforts happening currently. There's Amazon, Starbucks, and, and Apple. What do you make of the current climate, given your knowledge of America's history with unions?
2: It's so exciting. It's so historic. And we've also been here before you know, a lot of the current organizing is building on those past efforts. It's building on that past knowledge and those those past tactics. I mean, what the incredible organizers at the Amazon Labor Union in Staten Island have done is employ the kind of direct worker-to-worker organizing and community building that we saw the industrial workers of the world in the 1900s used to great effect, that we saw Dorothy Lee Bolden in Atlanta in the 1960s use to organize the National Domestic Workers Union. It's how... Ben Fletcher organized dock workers on the waterfront in Philadelphia in the 1910s. It's everything old is new again. And it's so incredible to see this new generation using these more worker led direct tactics and embracing, you know, uh, the the truly multiracial, multigender, multilingual working-class movement that we're in right now.
1: We should also mention, though, that union membership has been on the decline for a while now. Since 1983, membership numbers have been cut nearly in half. How have we seen union sentiment change over the years? It's such a funny thing
2: because, well, maybe not funny. It's, it's certainly notable that you're absolutely correct. The numbers are not great. They've been declining steadily for years throughout my entire lifetime. But we're also at a moment when public support for unions is at a pretty historic peak. I think it's about sixty-eight percent. Clearly, people want to join unions; they're interested in unions. But it's pretty hard for a lot of workers to join unions, whether it's because they were left out of labor legislation, like domestic workers, agricultural workers, and independent contractors. They've been, you know, they never even got a shot. They were left out of the uh, the landmark National Labor Relations Act of 1935, and they we're still suffering from that. Or The fact that we're dealing with this ongoing epidemic of so-called right-to-work laws that are, you know, embraced by Republicans and anti-worker politicians and make it so much harder for unions to organize and build power. its It ain't easy, but it seems like a lot more people are becoming very interested in the idea. And I'm hoping that the current administration and a sort of beefed-up National Labor Relations Board are going
1: to make some decisions that make it easier for people to finally join this movement. You know, people often think of white men working blue collar jobs when they think about labor movements or unions. But historically, and today, black workers were more likely to be union members than white, Asian, or Hispanic workers. And your book is this exhaustive retelling of movements and figures throughout history helmed by women and people of color. What did you learn about labor movements by looking at it through that lens?
2: It was really gratifying to take that perspective because those are the stories I'm always the most interested in, right? Like, I, those are the voices that are left out of these mainstream narratives generally. As you said, the, the idea of the white guy in a hard hat that for a lot of people who aren't familiar, that kind of encapsulates the idea of the movement. But that's never been the case. The rest of us have always been here and have notched some of the most incredible and important wins, uh, even going back to the fact that the first factory strike in America was led by young immigrant women in 1824. it's um, I think it's very important for folks to see this history and to see themselves in this history, right? Because you're not going to want to be part of something that you think isn't made for or isn't welcoming for people like you. And so with this book, I was really hoping to show, especially young workers of color and disabled and queer folks Folks who feel like they're already being pushed to the margins, thanks to the way our society is set up. I wanted to make it very clear that not only are you welcome now, those who truly cared about liberation and cared about the working class have already made space for you centuries and decades before.
1: Kim, I want to turn to one of the most well-known tragedies in the history of American sweatshops. In 1911, a fire broke out at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, killing 146 people. Mostly young immigrant women worked there. Why is this so significant in the history of workers' rights?
2: The fact that it was such a huge tragedy and the fact that it had such a measured or a marked impact on the labor movement... Is what makes it so significant, right? Because there have been so many horrible instances throughout history where workers have been hurt or maimed or killed on the job, whether it's one person or a dozen people. Look at you know, the history of mining disasters, for one thing. But what was significant about the Triangle Factory, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, was the fact that so many people paid attention at the time. The fact that photography was kind of still a new medium, and there were pictures of these young women's bodies lying you know, mangled and bloody on the concrete. The fact that it happened in the middle of New York City in a busy area where passersby could see what was happening, could see these young workers leaping to their deaths from a window six stories up. Like that is is an indelible image. And it had a huge impact on one person, well, a lot of people, right? But it had a huge impact on one person who went on to do quite a lot of good for the labor movement, a woman named Frances Perkins, who at the time... She was, I think she was about my age, and she uh, happened to be visiting a friend in New York City. She was working for the Consumer Protection Bureau, and she saw that, and it really galvanized her and changed the course of her whole life. She uh, later went on to become a labor secretary in 1933, the first woman to hold a cabinet position and one of the longest serving labor secretaries in history. She became this huge force behind the New Deal and the Social Security Act. And she spent her life advocating for workers' rights. And the impact that Frances Perkins had, it's so I mean, we're seeing it today still in, in you know in our laws, in our in social security, in workplace regulations and safety regulations. And it's um it's an important piece of our history for people to know what happened, and know how it happened, to know why it happened, because those bosses locked those factory doors and consigned those young workers to their doom because they thought they could get away with it. And in this case, you know they did.
1: How much of early labor organizing came from women, either in in a formal way or informally? So much of it.
2: We've always been here, uh, whether or not that the people, usually men in power, have wanted us to be. Uh, in, you know, going back to the eight, late 1800s, the Knights of Labor, the first nationwide labor organization, they welcomed women the Industrial Workers of the World, which was formed in 1905 in Chicago, two of those founders, Mother Jones and Lucy Parsons, were women. And that union was, well, it was an outlier for a very long time in that it it welcomed workers of all genders and nationalities and races. Uh, but that was rare within organized labor for a very long time.
1: Well, And, and, though, and explain, and explain well, why, because as, as I understand it from the book, part of the argument being made was that, well, we've got to make sure men are okay. They're the ones bringing the most money into the house, so we've got to make sure they're secure, right?
2: Sure. And that was, even that rhetoric at the time was something that left so many people out because not every woman was sitting at home working in the kitchen, right? Like, Black women have always had to work. Uh, women of color who moved here from different places or who were indigenous women who were kind of swept up in, you know, that whole colonial genocide thing like they've never had the option not to work. And so pretending that, you know, paying a man a good salary could take care of an entire nation, could take care of entire families just erased all of those women, the work they had to do, working class and poor women they weren't sitting at home taking tea and, you know, handing out calling cards. They were in the sculleries and the laundries and in some places, the mines. Like it's the this sort of very outdated idea that women need to be protected and need to stay home and that men could take care of everything like that. That was present in the early labor movement. And I'm sure there's still people today that subscribe to that because they're archaic weirdos but (laughs) all that to say like we've always been here we've led massive strikes the first factory strike was led by women in 1824 the uprising of the 20,000 in 1909 led by immigrant garment worker women shut down New York City like it's the fact that women are not seen as the the leaders that we've always been and the organizers and radicals that we've always been in this movement it's just not It's just not true. It's just not how it happened. It's not how it's happening now either.
1: Well, I want to turn to another chapter in the book focused on disabled workers. In the 19th century, there were few options for disabled people and some wound up working in sideshows. What led to disabled workers moving beyond that?
2: Right. And that chapter is really important to me because I'm a disabled person, a person in the labor movement, and I've also uh, performed in the slideshow. Shout out to Coney Island. So that chapter, that section is really important for me to get right. And, you know, at that point, there were very few options for people who are disabled and very, you know, visible or <clears throat> exotic, as some people might say, ways and public support and sentiment towards disabled people was pretty negative. They, these folks, we, were supposed to stay home, stay out of sight. That really only began to change after World War I and World War II when veterans were coming home and they had been disabled and disfigured because of injuries they sustained on the battlefield. And medical advancements started trying to catch up and it became less of a stigma to be a disabled person because there was this association with valor and with the military and with war. And at that same kind of, same kind of juncture, the whole you know, eugenics movement and scientific racism publicly fell out of vogue. And you know, the, the appetites for live entertainment were changing because of technological uh, leaps, you know, TV, radio, maybe not TV yet, but radio for sure. And laws were being passed against the exhibition of human beings. It was a whole sort of complicated moment. I get into it more in the book, but it took it took a lot and it took a couple world wars for, I guess, folks like me to have any shot at all at getting what you would call a normal
1: job. Well, you also write about how COVID revealed to disabled workers that remote work, uh, something many had been advocating for and denied was doable, but it only happened when able people needed it. How much work still needs to be done for disabled workers?
2: I think there's so much <clears throat> there's such a lack of understanding and I think empathy for disabled workers. I mean, disabled workers are I think the largest minority group in the US. And as the pandemic has gone on and people have suffered from long COVID, there are more and more disabled people joining our ranks every day. And, you know, it's taken so much to get to a point where workplaces are even remotely accessible and there's still so much lack of understanding around disabled people's needs because there's so many different ways to be disabled, right? It's, I, I would say that disability justice activists know much more about this than I do. I was still learning when I was reporting and researching this chapter because I hadn't really thought about labor and disability in that way until I set out to find out more about it. And that's a problem too, right? The thought that disability justice issues are a separate niche interest, while it's been part of the equation the entire time, whether we're talking about sideshow performers in the the Victorian age, or coal miners grappling with black lung in Appalachia and fighting for their rights there. It's always been connected. And I think people need to pay a little bit more attention to that and how those two things intersect and what needs to be done going forward.
1: You know, Kim, as much as we see groups working together in the book, in Detroit's auto factories and in other workplaces, Black women faced multiple forms of discrimination. How often in these stories do you see women's issues being pushed aside for what labor organizers saw as the greater good?
2: You know, I'm glad you mentioned the efforts that happened in Detroit in the 60s, because they were so interesting and so revolutionary, and they still had those flaws, um, you know, for example, the, the um, drum, the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement, which was founded in the wake of a wildcat strike at uh, Dodge's Detroit plant. It was staffed by a handful of Black revolutionaries who were part of, you know, organizing in the area. They a lot of them were on staff at uh, this anti-capitalist newspaper in the city, and it, uh, the the environment at the time. This was in the wake of the 1967 Detroit riots. There was a really uh, were like surging interest in Marxism and radical politics. There's a lot happening there. And the, these leaders who predominantly men, they couldn't have done any of the things they achieved without the black women who were their their comrades right there at their, their side, doing the hard work. And yet some of those women were, they felt like they were shoved aside. They felt like they weren't taking seriously. Uh, Mike Hamlin, one of the organizers wrote in his biography That while these black women were instrumental in their work, the leaders lacked the will or the ability to curb what he called chauvinist attitudes. A woman, Edna Edna Watson, an organizer, said in this really great book, Detroit, I Do Mind Dying, that really goes into this history in a very in-depth way. uh, She said, there are no lack of roles for women as long as they accepted subordination and invisibility. So there's the patriarchy happening there, sexism, misogynoir it was really an example of how even the most revolutionary and kind of positive radical organizations can still replicate the same forms of oppression that they're supposed to be fighting against
1: well and can you point to an organizing effort that effectively shot itself in the foot by being exclusionary <laughs> there are uh, <laughs> there
2: are a lot of different strikes throughout the book that i could i could point to but one thing that I think it's important to note that it's—I mean, it's not a nice thing to know, but it's true—was that how major labor unions were very supportive of really awful, xenophobic, racist legislation at certain points throughout history? I mean, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, the American Federation of Labor, actually, uh, the Knights of Labor—they're—they're big supporters. Uh, what we saw. In the, uh, during World War II, when seasonal workers from Mexico were invited in to work in agriculture, the AFL opposed that program. And they actually refused to organize Latino workers for decades after that because they said, oh, well, these workers are coming in, they're taking jobs away from our white members. Like, that kind of rhetoric has only harmed the movement as much, as, and it's harmed workers, and it's harmed the cause. And it's, I mean, I'm glad that in a lot of ways... We've
1: moved past that, but, you know, there's still a lot more work to do on that front, I would say. We're discussing the fight for workers' rights in the U.S. throughout history and today. We'll be back with more in just a moment. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. ¶¶ Let's get back to our conversation about the history of labor movements. And let's bring another voice into the conversation. Hayden Wright is the United Mine Workers of America Women's Auxiliary President for Locos 2368 and 2245. Hayden, welcome to the program.
0: Thank you so much for having me on. I'm looking forward to talking with you today.
1: Kim, you have a whole chapter dedicated to the history of miners organizing in America, but there's also a current strike happening that you write about, the Warrior Met strike. It's been going on for over a year now, and you've been following it. Give us a quick rundown.
2: Yeah, it's yeah, they they've made it into year 2, which is not a milestone I think anybody wanted to reach, but it really does speak to the tenacity and the determination of these workers. Uh back on April 1st last year, uh, Eleven 1, hundred coal miners, members of, of the United Mine Works of America, at a, uh, a coal mine in Brookwood, Alabama, called Warrior Met Coal, went on strike. It's an unfair labor practice to strike because contract negotiations had broken down. The company was not was not playing fair. They were not offering anything worthwhile to these workers, and they decided, okay, we're going to go on strike. We're gonna we're gonna fight for what we deserve. And it's been a very long struggle. It's been a very ugly struggle in some cases. The company has allowed violence to be enacted against people in the picket lines. It smeared the mi- the coal miners in the press. It's really shades of Harlan County. You know, it, it hasn't gotten as much attention as it needs to because it is a very important action and these workers deserve so much better. And actually, it's sort of funny, we're speaking on the 26th. The uh, Worry Met Coal shareholder meeting is happening, I think, probably right now. And I I'm very curious to see how, if they feel like they spent their money wisely. trying to break this strike because the workers aren't backing down.
1: Well, we did reach out to Warrior Met Coal, and while they said the company does not have a comment, they directed us to their website. One statement on the site reads, quote, over the last five years, Warrior Met Coal gave three voluntary and or contract wage increases of up to 44.3% to represented employees. This means some employees are earning $10.58 an hour, more than they were at the beginning of the 2016 contract. You can find a link to that website at the 1A.org. Hayden, As you enter now the the second year of this strike, what has this experience been like for you?
0: I think overall it has been, for the membership, a stressful time, but it's also been an opportunity to really see how strong you can be as a person. It's been challenging both emotionally and just financially. Um, It's only with the support that we've received from the union and from our brother and sister unions and locals across the country that we have been able to hold out now more than 13 months. And with what Warrior Met has said in that statement, the problem is they're making claims that they gave those raises. While that's true, those weren't given in a contract. Therefore, a company can tell you they're going to pay you whatever they want, But then they could come back next week and take it all away. If they really planned on giving the workers those benefits, if they really planned on giving that compensation, why not put it down in a union contract? Unless you're just trying to union bust or you're not planning on paying your workers fairly in the long run. That's why it is so important that we stand strong as a union and we don't play into the games that the company tries to play.
1: Kim you went to Alabama for the 1 year anniversary of the strike on April 1st and you interviewed Greg Pilkerton who is an Alabama coal miner and WM and UMWA member who's been on strike against Warrior Met Coal since last year. Uh, let's take a listen to what he had to say.
0: A lot of discouragement. Man, uh, you know a lot of us have taken jobs other places we're not happy. I mean, it's the company and the, the union worker, we got to come together as one they need us as much as we need them and you know this could all be solved pretty quick it just you know i think stronger heads are prevailing and hurt feelings are prevailing and it's time to get over that crap let everybody make some money i mean i mean with us they're making good money with you know with them we're making good money and you know let's 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 handle these, this situation
1: Hayden, this is now believed to be the longest strike in the history of the state. Are you surprised the strike has lasted this long?
0: I am surprised that it has lasted this long. It really shows what lengths a company will go to to keep from negotiating good faith with the union. It's easier for them to do that in places like Alabama, where the labor laws and the court systems are not on the side of workers. They are on the side of the corporations. Um, That is one thing that we are fighting against. We're fighting against not just Warrior Met, but fighting for all workers who are under this same struggle. We're fighting for the Amazon worker. We're fighting for the Starbucks worker. We're fighting for everyone in our state who deserves to have their voice heard and has had it suppressed by capital grade and capital interest.
1: We heard from Greg there that some of the people on strike have, have gone to find other jobs. What is your family doing?
0: Uh, my husband, in September, went to work at the Amazon facility, BHM one in Bessemer.
1: And how is that working out for him?
0: Um, he's been very involved with RWDSU and their organizing campaign there. The UMWA has showed up to their rallies. We've offered them support. We're planning on doing the same thing with Starbucks workers. We take it seriously when we say we are one and we are everywhere. And that is exactly what we've been doing here in Alabama. We've been fighting for 13 months, but we're still ready to stand up and fight for the other workers in our state just as hard.
1: Kim, you write in the epilogue that you were surprised this strike didn't get as much press as the Amazon organizing in Bessemer did. Why do you think that is? You know, there are a bunch of different factors involved. Uh, This is a group of rural,
2: blue-collar, predominantly white, but not entirely white workers in Alabama in the deep South, in a place where I think a lot of folks who live outside of that environment are very quick to write people off and quick to ignore and quick to say, oh, these folks deserve it. They voted a certain way. They're acting against their own interests. And that's not the whole story. And that is not what solidarity looks like. If we want to support workers, we support workers. Uh, There's the added complication, I suppose, of the fact that These folks are coal miners. They work in a fossil fuel industry. We're in the middle of a climate crisis. It's complicated, right? But even if we went to a green economy tomorrow, these workers would still, if the company came to the table, they would still be heading back to work because they mine metallurgical coal, which is used to make steel, which is shipped overseas uh, towards more developing countries, industrializing countries. There are so many different intersections and layers to this struggle. And I've just been fascinated by it and I've become very close with a lot of folks down there and I've become very almost protective of them because these folks deserve just as much attention as any other labor struggle and every labor struggle deserves attention. We're all part of the working class. We're all being ground down by the boots of capital. We really need to stand with one another and make sure that people are being cared for and paid decently, that they're safe on the job. And then we can argue
1: about everything else afterwards. Hayden, as you are now in year two of this strike, what's next for your movement?
0: We have, since the beginning of the strike, we hold rallies in solidarity with one another every Wednesday at 5 o'clock. So anybody that's local that would like to come out, anyone that would like to travel, we'd be happy to have you there. We give out pantry bags every week to families as well with hygiene products, baby items, necessities that after this long on strike, sometimes it's hard to be able to provide for your family. So I think the solidarity efforts are still going strong. They're actually getting a little bit stronger because we kind of built the plane as we were flying it. At this point, strike efforts and picketing and rallies have become such an ingrained part of our lives. It's almost hard to imagine what it's going to be like going back to our husbands working because we have gotten to spend that time together because that was one big factor in the strike is we never got to see our families. And now we rally together, we pick it together and we celebrate together, not just with our physical families, but with our union family.
1: That's Hayden Wright, the United Mine Workers of America Women's Auxiliary President for Locos 2368 and 2245. It's part of the union working with miners striking against Warrior Met Coal in Alabama. Hayden, thank you for speaking with us.
0: Thank you for having us and telling this important struggle because we're still here and we're still fighting.
1: Lawrence emails, I've been around long enough to remember the flip side of labor unions. For example, people making exorbitant salaries for performing low skilled jobs that eclipse those of skilled workers and the unions routinely holding businesses hostage to strikes to greedily get more benefits. Kelly tweets, I was part of the APFA strike against American airlines in 1993. I walked off the job in Seattle, far from home, scared, but empowered by our unity buoyed and supported by other airline employees. I made. At home, and Lisa tweets: "Workers want a voice, so they come together to have one powerful voice. They give their sweat and toil; they shouldn't have to give their blood or lives." Currently, Kim, what issues do you see unions grappling with, or, or what areas do you see still see room for growth? Honestly, it is the I saw some you
2: know some silly pundit on Twitter a week or so ago talking about how unions need to move away from this quote unquote woke woke progressive agenda. And that just portrays such a fundamental misunderstanding of what the labor movement is, because these, you know, progressive or quote unquote woke issues, which are just like addressing racism or ableism or sexism or transphobia and homophobia in the workplace, those are just as important as bread and butter economic issues, because those are workers' issues, right? Like a worker who is going into their job and has to be afraid of being misgendered or discriminated against or being unable to access it because the accessibility is out of whack. Like, that is a labor issue. And it's just absurd that that isn't understood as widely as it should be. And I would also, if I could wave a magic wand and fix everything tomorrow, I would definitely hope to see more solidarity going forward for sex workers, for criminalized workers, for workers in prison, because incarcerated workers are also a big part of the labor movement. I get into that in the book, and there are there are very specific intersections at certain moments in time when that was much clearer. But I think that if we are going to say that we care about workers, we want workers to win, we want workers to be safe and protected and happy and paid properly, we need to be paying attention to all workers, all especially those who are marginalized, who are vulnerable, who are still left out of the conversation. Because if we're not lifting them up and
1: advocating for them and fighting like hell for them, then what are we even fighting for, you know? That's Kim Kelly, author of the book Fight Like Hell, which is out today. She's also an independent labor journalist and organizer. Kim, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you so much. Solidarity Forever. Today's producer was Michelle Harvin. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.